So we finally get the cessation of dukkha tonight. <laughs> In the nick of time. <laughs> but you know, in a, in a maybe weird, ironic way, cessation of dukkha or freedom or enlightenment or awakening or whatever we want to call it, it doesn't really make sense without talking about dukkha. <laughs> you know, in a way, like the image that the Buddha used often is a fire going out. So the fire represents the agitation of the mind moving with greed and aversion and delusion and then it goes out due to certain causes and conditions and that's the image he liked to use for awakening or cessation or enlightenment or freedom. The fires, the burning fires of lust, of aversion, of delusion going out. People would sometimes ask him, well, where, where do people go when they become enlightened? And he'd, he'd use this image, like, well, where does the fire go when it goes out? There's so many misunderstandings about enlightenment and the cessation of greed, anger, delusion, or freedom from the sense of self. One beautiful, simple story, many of you probably have heard, but it's just its just kind of a nice story because it, it's got this sort of requisite drama of a person struggling with his or her practice for decades in the monastery and sort of surpasses everybody there but still doesn't have the freedom they, the heart seeks. So they leave the monastery, you know, after having bested all the other meditators and wanders cause out into the forests and mountains because they heard that there's somebody, you know, one of the ancient sages out there that really knows the secret. And wandering, wandering, asking everybody, have you seen or heard of this person? And finally, one day, on the side of a mountain, uh, the seeker sees this old crumpled body walking down the mountain carrying a heavy load of branches and asks this person, you know, have you heard of this great master or <coughs> seen this person? And they have a exchange a few words and uh, it becomes clear that this is the person he's been looking for. And so he asks, you know, can you teach me? You know, I've been practicing dutifully for a long time, following my breath in, all the way in, and then all the way out. <laughs> Noticing the lifting and the placing. <laughs> maintaining noble silence. <laughs> I've been so good, yet my heart is still tight. <laughs> And so, without sort of blinking an eye, the old sage, she just drops the bundle of sticks that goes crashing to the ground. That's her teaching. And the guy gets it, just like that. Ah. <laughs> and they had this beautiful moment together, you know, where uh, the guy is sort of realizing something he had missed, something so obvious, you know, let go, put down the load.
and the teacher just appreciating how ripe the student was. This beautiful moment, timeless moment, sharing the sort of heart, heart's empty of pushing and pulling. And then it occurs to the guy, so what's next? <laughs> and so the old crumpled sage picks up the bundle of sticks, straps it to her back, and walks down the mountain. <laughs> and there are other stories like that uh, in the traditions, you know, like the ox herding pictures you probably have heard of, where the, the last scene is the seeker going back to the marketplace, which is, should sound a little familiar, because <laughs> we'll be heading back, all of us tomorrow, to whatever there is there for us. And it, it really helps to have a, a world to go back to because it helps tease out all the idealism in, about practice and about enlightenment. Because it can seem like, you know, when the retreat is humming along and the weather's good and not sticky, you know, and uh, the sounds of nature are the sounds we like and not the sounds we don't like. Like somebody mentioned one of the groups, and I noticed it last night, the screech owl, you know, which just seems to have the sound you don't want to hear. <laughs> and it's like, how did that happen in evolution, that <laughs> a predator would make such an obnoxious call and do it all night long? <laughs> if I were a little critter, I would not be leaving my hole. <laughs> <laughs> so we we can have this sort of idealistic feeling like because a lot of positive energy can arise being on retreat we don't know what to do with it so the mind tends to idealize the situation we're in and it, like this common ground retreat becomes some amazing utopia the, some blessed place some blessed group of people and it's like we're already setting up the rest of our life to be no good in relationship to this imagined amazing experience we had here. So tonight, you know, we'll look at dukkha and the ending of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha. And, uh, and maybe... Uh, sort of uh, take a long view, a maturing view of what dukkha and the end of dukkha is. One of the great saints of the past, the person who brought Buddhism to Korea, Shanul was the person's name, I forget exactly when, maybe 13th, 14th century, long ago, and uh, he's got this, these great recorded teachings I remember um, something through the radiance is a, one particular translation. Anybody know breaking through the radiance or seeing the radiance? Anyway, if you search for Shunul, you'll find the book, a uh, recent translation of his teachings. And one of his uh, sort of central teachings was this phrase, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. 
It's kind of a political point in the Buddhist uh, teachings because they're sort of different schools, like the sudden awakening school versus the gradual cultivation school. You know, is awakening something that's gradual or does it happen all at once? You know, you have an insight and then you're forever changed. So being somebody grounded in experience as opposed to a philosopher, he realized that there is sudden awakening and there is gradual cultivation. Because the fires, you know, the fire of greed, anger, and delusion, it's not like the mind can throw a lot of fuel on the fire and then it just burns for a while. But the way things work, you know, when we pay attention, the way things work, we see things are happening moment by moment by moment. So it, all it takes is one moment not to add, you know, the fuel for greed, anger, and delusion, and the fires of dukkha go out. So there are moments, even for us lowly beginners, there are moments of awakening. It doesn't mean we've recognized them. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. But there are moments of awakening. Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the great Thai masters of the last century, who also trained a lot of Western teachers, um, he wrote this little pamphlet that you can download, Nibbana for Everyone, I think it's called. And uh, in that pamphlet, he says, if you didn't experience Nibbana, you would soon die. If you didn't regularly, if the mind didn't regularly access the coolness of Nibbana, of the unconditioned, it would sort of fry itself out. That it's not some distant place. So we have the sudden awakenings. These need to be realized or noticed, recognized. And then they inspire the gradual cultivation. You know, as we get a, an, in, an intuitive sense of space, of freedom, of release, of universal love and freedom, then as the sense of self reconfigures itself, reestablishes itself in the moment, we feel inspired. I'm inspired to be free. Now, a liberated person wouldn't say that, but a deluded person having a, a moment of awakening would say that. I'm inspired to be free. I have the scent of something. <laughs> Something's in the air, you know? It smells like freedom. I'm really interested in that. And, and we, we undertake a gradual cultivation. From the ego point of view, we start loosening the nuts, you know, pulling out nails, sort of playing with the superstructure of our lives and saying, well, do I really need this? Nah. <laughs> How about this attachment, this view, this? No. You know, we start both actually, you know, in terms of stuff in our lives, but, uh, but more importantly, just in terms of the sort of rigid conceptual structures that we feel are so important, including our views and ideas of Buddhism. You know, my Buddhism is bigger than your Buddhism. Or <laughs> There's a lot of that, you know, whatever, even within sort of Vipassana circles, let alone <coughs> the bigger scope of things, um, sort of the right and the wrong or the higher or the lower approach. Mark, I had a question. Uh, 
I have never heard suffering. I mean, it's, isn't suffering itself also impermanent in the sense? It seems like it, there is suffering and then after, I mean, for a while there is no suffering and there is suffering, there is no suffering. So is there something I'm missing there? I mean, yeah, but the, the thing about it, as long as we're kind of uh, established to some degree in self-view, then even in a moment where, like, for example, when we see something, when we open to something really beautiful, because, you know, the our ordinary mind is so pleased with that beauty in that moment, that it doesn't, it isn't compelled to be greedy, to be hateful, to be deluded. So, in a way, it's a moment, uh, a moment of liberation. The fires of dukkha go out, but the tendencies haven't disappeared. And so, even though we may not experience dukkha in that moment, the fact that we're susceptible to reconstructing the experience of dukkha is a kind of dukkha. (coughs) Not being out of the woods is dukkha, even if it's a nice place in the woods, you know. But uh, we haven't really uh, gotten rid of the latent tendencies to create suffering. That's why, like, even in the Buddhist cosmology, um, you know, just as a, use it just as a metaphor, but, you know, there are, are beings that are so refined, they don't even have subtle bodies, let alone a body like ours. They're, they exist as like pure loving kindness, like the, the, the realms of the four immeasurables of loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and joy. But even these beings, you know, and they, because they're so refined and uh, the quality is so stable, so universal, that they have incredibly long lives uh, beyond like the expansion and contraction of the universe, you know. I don't know how they know these things, but they seem to. <laughs> Still, though, they have the latent tendency to create a sense of self, get confused by a sense of self, set in motion the causes and conditions for greed and aversion, and can end up back in a hellish realm. Um, so uh, there's, um, there's sort of putting aside greed, anger, and delusion, and have a moment of liberation, a temporary moment of liberation, and then there's the uprooting of the tendencies. And that kind of brings us back to the point. It's the uprooting, setting in motion the uprooting of the tendencies, which is the gradual cultivation. And the sudden awakening is when circumstances, conditions arise that don't cause greed, anger, and delusion to be active in the mind. And then there's a realization of the mind without greed, anger, and delusion in it. Even though it's temporary, based on certain, it's dependent on certain conditions being there, like a moment of real beauty. And the mind, is, in a sense, is stunned out of its usual greediness, aversiveness, deludedness. I was looking through some of my notes and I saw a quote by John Wooden, some of you might remember, was a famous basketball coach for UCLA, I believe, back in the 70s, maybe even 60s, I forget. I think he was used to be one of the winningest coaches ever. And he's got a great line, do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. 
And I think this has a lot to do with dukkha, because, you know, when we approach the spiritual path, Mm. I want to be free. It's like I want to be who I am, and I want to be free. And, you know, we keep banging our head, because we can't really do that. We can't have the sort of life we imagine we have and be free. Because this realm, the realm that we've created, the idea of our life that we've created, is like a house of cards. It's very fragile, ephemeral, insubstantial. And we'll never get the security that we really want in this world. The self can never be free. You know, we hear these sort of paradoxical statements. Or Larry Rosenberg, some of you know, a well-known Vipassana teacher and one of the founding teachers of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's got a book on the Anapanasati Sutta, the Mindfulness of Breathing talk the Buddha gave. I'm getting the name of the book now, but his line is something like, uh, uh, there, is no, uh, there is no escape from suffering. There's an end to suffering, but there's no escape from suffering. And his point is that the end of suffering isn't about escaping it. So, on this level, as a constructed being, as a, a being uh, based on the constructions of the mind, the, the dukkha, suffering, is real. In this world, suffering is real. And there's really no way around that, because the whole fabric of our existence is fragile and insecure. And we don't, you don't need me to tell you that. There's a great article in Buddha Dharma. I don't know if you've heard of this journal. Uh, comes out once a quarter. And um, it's really one of the better Buddhist magazines out there, journals out there. Norman Fisher, a wonderful teacher, Zen teacher, has an article called The Real Path. Norman Fisher explains why it's, why it's suffering that gives us the incentive, vision, and strength to transform our lives. He's got this amazing paragraph where he's listing all the reasons for dukkha, or all the examples of dukkha. Let me just read a little bit of this. <coughs> the most astonishing fact of human life is that most of us think it's possible to minimize and even eliminate suffering. We actually think this which is one reason why it's so difficult for us when we're suffering. We think, this shouldn't be, it shouldn't be this way, or I'm going to get rid of this somehow. I think many of us believe that since suffering is so bad and so unpleasant, if we were really good and really smart, it wouldn't arise in the first place. Somehow, suffering is our own fault. If it's not our fault, then it's definitely someone else's fault. <laughs> but when suffering arises, we think we should surely be able to avoid it. We should be able to set it to one side and not dwell on it. We should move on, as they say. Go on to positive things. Do a little Buddhism. Meditate. Get around the suffering and go forward. We shouldn't allow the suffering to stop us, not allow it to mess us up. We believe that if we only... If we believe that if we only... We believe that if only we play our cards right, we will have a positive life without much suffering. We constantly come back to the way to that way of thinking. It's incredible we would think such a thing. 
the more we look around, the more we pay attention to what we're feeling and what others around us are feeling, the more suffering we see. There is more suffering than we know. Anxiety is suffering, isn't it? There's a lot of anxiety. Not getting what you want is suffering. How many of us don't get what we want? Irritation is suffering. Anger is suffering. Having to put up with things you don't like is suffering. Knowing that you're going to have to die and you really don't want to, that's suffering. (laughs) Sickness is suffering. Old age is suffering. Not having enough money is suffering. Losing your job is suffering. Having a bad marriage is suffering. Having no marriage can be suffering if you want to have a marriage. Fear is suffering. Knowing you should lose. Knowing you could lose what you think you have is suffering. Being ashamed is suffering. Feeling disrespected is suffering. Feeling unloved is suffering. Feeling loved but not loved enough is suffering. (laughs) Feeling lonely is suffering. Feeling bewildered is suffering. Being too cold, being too hot, being stuck in traffic. (laughs) Getting in the wrong line and the guy in the front is very, very slow. (laughs) And the other line you could have got into is going much faster. (laughs) And you could have been in that the front of that line by now. But if you joined it now, you'd be at the end. All of this is suffering. Even without talking about the earthquakes, the wars, the deprivation, the oppression, the illness, and the hunger that is all happening all over the world, suffering is really common. It is not a special condition. Suffering is a daily experience. Even if we try to ignore it, we really don't escape suffering. It registers in our psyche and becomes a conditioning factor in our lives. We may find that we're living in reaction to the suffering that we're unwilling to see and think about. So the idea that something that suffering is something, some sort of mistake and a minor problem that we could overcome with a little bit of meditation and a positive attitude is the towering pinnacle of human self-deception. That idea that we can escape suffering is, of course, the cause of suffering. This is the samsara that we talked about, like, I'm going to become somebody that's not suffering. You see, that's what I mentioned before. It's the I who wants to be free, escape suffering. And so we constantly are becoming somebody and bumping into other people who have become somebody, all hoping to not suffer causing each other suffering, and then being inspired to become somebody who's not suffering, bumping into other people who are becoming people who hopefully won't suffer, more suffering, and on and on like that. So the end of suffering isn't an escape from suffering. It's a kind of equanimity or a a coming into alignment with the ephemeral impermanent, insecure nature of this imagined existence. This is why mindfulness is emphasized so much. And at the very end of this article, Norman Fisher says something really beautiful. You know, when we're, when we are able to some degree at least put down the neurotic escape, a neurotic need to escape suffering. Basically, our neurotic need to have a life that 
doesn't exist. You know, the imagined life where there isn't dukkha. When we when we stop that to some degree, put that down, then in a mysterious and maybe even ironic way, there we are with the very real pain in human existence. But then now all of the pain that we're not trying to get away from is a cause for the heart breaking wide open, feeling whole and connected in ways that are beautiful. You know, people talk all the time about how wonderful the community is, you know, the community of practitioners is, and how much strength, how much inspiration people get from it. But what they're really saying, I think, is it's so nice to be a suffering human being together, you know, to to jointly agree that we can be here together. We don't need to try to escape, that it's okay to relax here together in this ephemeral, mysterious, insecure world we live in. There's something really beautiful about that as opposed to needing to be numb, needing to be in denial, needing to be distracted from life as it actually is. You know, where that beautiful Baba cat is hunting cute little chipmunks. (laughs) She had one the other night, but I was able to distract her skillfully (laughs) in a... When in the moment of distraction, the chipmunk that I thought was very injured had enough quickness and strength to get to the hole or the tree or wherever it got to before the cat got it. I tried not to feel pride. <laughs> you must have already been feeling it. <laughs> yeah, it was too late. It was already too late. Oh, it's that, that habit, you know, when things are cute, they must be, it's my conditioning. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein says in his book, Insight Meditation, liberation means letting go of suffering. Do you feel the prospect of being free from greed? Do you feel, do you Fear being free from anger or delusion? Probably not. Liberation means freeing ourselves from those qualities in the mind that torment and limit us. So freedom is not something magical or mysterious. It does not make us weird. Enlightenment means purifying our mind and letting go of those things that cause so much suffering in our lives. It's very down to earth. So, suffering and the end of suffering. So if the cause of dukkha is trying to escape it, which is another way of saying not understanding what it is, then the solution, of course, is to understand dukkha as it is. So we've talked about over the last days, um, like what we can do to sensitize the mind. In a way, it's, it's like a trick. 
when we cultivate calm, it's both pleasant, kind of draws us in, you know, the nice feeling of being tranquil, and wholeness, that feeling of being grounded, being light, all these sort of beautiful, sometimes paradoxical qualities that happens when the mind becomes more unified in the present moment. We get drawn in by the pleasantness, but the flip side of that pleasantness is the mind becomes very, very sensitive. It notices more and more. Everything is touching the heart in a very deep, deep way. And it starts to feel like it's too much. And if it doesn't feel like it's too much now, it might feel like it's too much when you turn your radio on in the car on your way home or, you know, or just it may feel like too much when you start talking to each other at lunch tomorrow. Just the, uh, the power of being a, you know, a social being and the different energy that gets thrown around. Now I'm not talking about negative energy, just joy, just sort of life energy moving around. It can be really intense when the mind is really sensitive. And in a way that's the, that's the whole idea. We have to become more and more sensitive to understand, to get become more and more intimate with dukkha, to be interested in dukkha, the nature of dukkha, the nature of insecurity, the nature of impermanence, and in particular, the nature of the conditioned habit of the mind, how the mind reacts to the insubstantial nature of our lives, right? It reacts with denial. It doesn't want to know it. It wants to assume things are more permanent than they are. Like we don't expect to die tomorrow. We don't expect to get cancer, at least not in the next couple of weeks. Or, but yet, there's so many examples of things happening that we didn't expect. You know, we expect our relationships to continue on. But we know, I mean, it doesn't take much for us to understand that. Actually, we don't know what's going to happen. So we use denial. We use uh, greed, like, well, I'll just want this, make this happen, try to make this happen, and that will sort of solidify my happiness, my security. And we keep getting burnt, not getting what we want. Then we start getting frustrated and angry and aversive. It isn't fair. So these are our three strategies, and they confuse and distort the mind. But as we become more sensitive, we notice them more quickly. We don't have to be totally lost in aversion before we notice it. Just the, just the initial intention to be greedy, to be aversive, to go into denial, just doesn't feel good. It feels immediately like a contraction, like moving in more into dukkha, not toward release.
So what is this moving, like moving into what the Buddha would call the three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, and uh, impersonal, not-self nature of things, the conditional nature of things. So we're just getting grounded in the way that it is, getting grounded in Dhamma, the way it is, the way everything is, the way our internal states are, the way our external experiences are, they're characterized by impermanence, they're insubstantial. When the mind gets identified, there's always dukkha. There's no attachment or identification without dukkha. And it's all conditional. There's no center to it. So we're learning to get use our sensitivity to wake up to this, to see this everywhere. Whatever we're doing, on retreat, off retreat, quietly reflecting on the mind, engaged in the world, we're noticing the impermanent, the unsatisfactoriness, and the impersonal nature of what's happening. Not to be uh, morbid about things, but just because it's true. And the interesting thing is, as we get closer and closer to the uh, insecure nature of things, the heart, like I mentioned earlier, just begins to break open. And see, this is the dynamic. It's getting close to Dhamma, the way it is, the insecure, insubstantial way that it is, that reveals the heart, the freedom, or whatever you want to call it, that we've always sought, always wanted. That's the refuge we want. But it is revealed in opening to things as they are. It doesn't get revealed running from things as they are, denying things as they are, trying to fix things as they are. What gets revealed there is a scared neurotic self. That's what we see when we're trying to distract ourselves or deny things or fight things or get things. We feel needy. We feel tight and aversive. We feel disconnected. That's what we feel when we take those strategies. It doesn't feel good. That's what we call dukkha. Trying to escape suffering is dukkha. Opening to suffering is liberation. No wonder it's so difficult. I mean, because it's paradoxical, it's not intuitive from a self-centered point of view that we would open to exactly what we're inclined to run from. And that's why we have these sort of rituals of coming together and staying put, you know, stripping away some of the distractions. And just like the retreat is really a metaphor for just sitting in the middle of our lives or standing or walking in the middle of our lives or sipping tea in the middle of our lives, but just staying trusting and, and appreciating that there, there is this insecure life to open to because it reveals what's been forgotten or been lost. There's a beautiful um, teaching from Achan Cha, this great Thai master and uh, the founder of the Western Thai forest lineage, Ajahn, Ch uh, Ajahn Chanako is in that lineage of teachings, Ajahn Sumedho 
of course. And Ajahn Sumedho spent many years in Thailand as a monk under Ajahn Chah's teaching. And then Ajahn Chah asked him at some point to go to England and start a monastery there, which he did, just ended being the abbot this last year. I think that probably was in the mid-70s when he finally, when he went to England, 76 or something like that. And he was there setting up, you know, the monasteries in England, and I forget exactly when, maybe in the early 80s, 1980, 1981. Uh, Ajahn Chah did something he hadn't, ever really done. He sent Ajahn Sumedho a letter. He asked one of the monks in Thailand to um, take a, write down a letter for him to send to Ajahn Sumedho. And then uh, a few days after Ajahn Sumedho received it, Ajahn Chah had a stroke and his sort of verbal teaching career had ended. He never spoke or moved uh, after that. He was in, I guess, some kind of a coma for a long time. I forget how many years, but more than like around eight or seven years, something like that. Um, and here's what that letter said. So it's just, a, you know, if you want to give one of your senior students, who's now a respected teacher himself, a bit of advice, what would you say? This is what Ajahn Chah told Ajahn Sumedho. Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aides and partners in building par- parami. So, yeah. Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aides and partners in building parami. Now, parami, they're the beautiful qualities of the heart, and traditionally they're the qualities of Buddha for facts uh, in order to uh, realize her or his intention to be a Buddha, to be able to teach effectively. It's the beautiful qualities of heart that uh, somebody aspiring to be a Buddha, a beautiful, wise, effective teacher, needs to cultivate in order to be able to not just realize freedom, but to be able to articulate it in a way that other people can get it set the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. And so qualities like energy and generosity and morality and renunciation, wisdom, loving-kindness, patience, equanimity, resoluteness, truthfulness. It's a really nice list in Buddhism. Just to have a sense like this is, you know, to cultivate these would make us a very beautiful, balanced, shiny person, productive person. And so Ajahn Chah, at the beginning, this isn't the end of his statement, at the beginning of his statement, he's just saying that you're going to have love and hate that just comes with the territory of being a human being, so transmute all the love and hate into these beautiful qualities. Anytime there's love and hate for anything whatsoever, just transform it, transmute it into something beautiful, something shiny something that is a blessing to be around. Even for ourselves to be around our own beautiful qualities, that's just just as much of a blessing as being around somebody else's saintly quality. And then he goes on, this is sort of the kicker, 
Because this we understand. Okay, yeah, life is filled with love and hate, and I can get spun out around love and hate, or I can put it to work, you know, to shine, create a nice shine in these ten different ways, to shine up equanimity, resoluteness, to shine up sila, or morality, or generosity, or truthfulness, you know, patience, you know, energy. And then he gives the wisdom teaching, or the other wisdom teaching. He said, the Buddha Dharma, the way of the Buddha, the way of freedom, is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This samedo is your place of non-abiding. So the Buddha Dharma, the, the way of freedom, is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This samedo is your place of non-abiding. And I wanted to read this because I think it helps us understand that, you know, this path of developing sensitivity in order to see more clearly, open more thoroughly to the insubstantial, mysterious, insecure life that's being lived here. And uh, you see, that opening is what strips away the moving forwards and moving backwards and standing still. It strips away all the strategies, all the self-strategies, because nothing works. You know, no degree of cleverness, no kind of profound philosophical understanding helps us when somebody we love is trying to breathe, but they can't breathe anymore. Nothing makes sense of that, that kind of experience of loss. Or the thought, you know, of thousands, probably tens of thousands of children who don't have enough food to eat right now. Or any, you know, any kind, being in the wrong line. <laughs> As Norman Fishman taught, you know, just that frustration. I, when and I had one of those experiences of guess we forget, maybe coming back from Mexico, but anyway, uh, and then all of the computers and customs just went out, and there's like hundreds of people there, and it was like, all trying to figure out like, because none of the lines were moving, and you know, when no, your lines are moving, see, we didn't really know what was going on, it's like this sort of primal hunger, like for the right line. <laughs> <laughs> and people just started switching, you know, with all their luggage. Because <laughs> this is after you picked up all your luggage, you know. And it was just like, it was a hell realm. <laughs> and, and then they, they go on the announcement, you know, they, they announce what had happened. And they say, all people with foreign visas or passports, you're just going to have to wait. We're only doing U.S. citizens at this point. And it was just like this sort of palatable feeling of anger and fear and so just that uh, uh, just how easy it is for uh, that snowball effect around dukkha because as we move closer to it like in that situation you know just a feeling of being helpless you know a long flight long day wanting to get home and how easily something can get 
really big. And to, you know, just to sort of say yes to that, you know how that is to say, okay, it's like this. You know, and so tomorrow or even tonight as your mind anticipates re-entry, you know, you can say, yes, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, probably, my mind will probably at different moments get wigged out. You know, yeah, I'll probably lose the pleasant feelings of samadhi. Just to say yes, you know, to whatever you imagine, yeah, that's possible, that could happen. There's just so much more freedom in saying yes to life than there is to wanting it to be any particular way, even a really sublime way. Wanting life to be a sublime way is a kind of hell. It may be a a relatively soft version of hell, but it's still hell to want it. Like my particular soft version of hell, as many of you have heard me talk about, is like wanting a nice place on the South Shore of Lake Superior. (laughs) I really want that. (laughs) And it's like a soft hell, you know, because the imagining like how skillfully I'd use it and, you know, what it could become and how other people could use it and, um, you know, all these, like how good it would be for my practice and, you know, I'd be a better teacher and (laughs) a better partner and... So all those nice thoughts kind of give it a soft, fuzzy quality, but wanting it is hell, you know, no matter how I disguise it with all the good reasons, the desiring means that my life, my heart is incomplete now because I don't have it yet. And that's hell. And so I have a choice, you know, I can try to escape this hell by actually getting what I want. Or I can escape this hell by opening to the hell. Yeah, opening to the one who's needy, the one who feels discontent, the one who's not happy, the one who doesn't want to completely, thoroughly open to his life as it actually is now. You know, the one who doesn't have the place in the South Shore. You know, just to be that guy with this life, this moment. nice poem. I don't know who this poet is. Shido Bunan. Here's the poem though. The moon's the same old moon. The flowers exactly as they were. Yet I've become the thingness of all the things I see. Buddha has a word sometimes translated as suchness or thusness. And really talking about the mind or whatever you want to call it, it's what's left when the fires of greed, anger, and delusion go out. You know, that moment of of momentary awakening. So I want to end tonight by just giving us a few things to look out for in terms of our wholesome desire to want to open to life as it is, to open to dukkha as it is, 
open to the insecure, congested, tight aspects of life as they are. Not because it's a grim duty and we should do it, but because it's transforming, it's liberating. The heart that can open to things as they are is the liberated heart or the liberated mind. And the mind that runs from things as they are, tries to fix or deny, that's, that's the suffering mind. So one thing we can be on the lookout for tonight, tomorrow, forever, is any sense of being the doer, the one who needs to be in control. It should be like a, like a, a beautiful mindfulness bell goes off. Oh honey, I've been looking for you. I've been looking to see the doer, the sense of being a doer, being the one who's in control, being the one who's in patience, because you are a gateway to liberation. All I have to do is hug you. I just have to be intimate with you. I just have to see you as you actually are. Show up. So, and this is like I'm picking some real common things, at least in my mind, I'm assuming it's universally common, being the doer. And maybe for some of you, you know, the, it's the opposite, like being the one who's helpless or who's afraid of doing. But that's a doing too, you know. Holding back is a kind of doing too. And then just to watch how as we get interested and open to the doing, being the doer, the controller, it's like the process of opening itself involves, doesn't involve doing. It's like this is the art. It's, what, it's what's so perfect and amazing about the practice. It's like what we need to understand is arising. It's like the teacher, the teaching we need, it arises right in the process. So it's like, well, if I open to this, then how am I going to function in life? Well, in the opening to that controlling tendency of mind or the doing, being the doer, that is exactly what we need to do. Just opening to that, it sort of reveals like how doing, being the doer, gets transformed into an effortless doing. It's like letting, I think there's a line in some poem, something like letting life live through us. And this gets discovered because that's exactly what we have to do with the controller and the doer. We have to like be so intimate, like it's happening, we're sitting right in the middle of that neurotic, fear-based action. And it just magically transforms itself. And then doing is just happening. Choices are being made. So it's not like I'm accepting things. You know, we can create such a burden, I should accept things as they are. I should just let things happen. Things are already happening. We don't have to just, we don't have to let things happen. <laughs> things are already effortlessly happening. Life is already living through us. It's been doing that since the beginning of time. <laughs> and so this is the, the great thing, is just getting interested. This is why it's, we should be grateful when 
we clearly see there's a doer present, a controller present. Oh yeah, I know there's something beautiful behind this door. Something really free and real. But it but I have to be willing to get interested and open to that feeling of being the doer. Another one is the experience of certainty. Like I'm certain. Just think about all the different places in your life where you have certainty. Like even around the Dharma. This is certainly the right approach to life, you know. And we can get very rigid, very sure of ourselves. So any kind of certainty, any strong belief, any dependency on meaning should be another one of those beautiful little mindfulness spells. Wait a minute. (laughs) You know? This seems a little too solid, a little too heavy, a little too, you know, kind of... It's like too good to be true when we're certain, when we have the answer, you know, that it should kind of raise our attention. I wonder if the whole world is behind this door, you know, the real world, the the world that's alive and free. And so we have to kind of, instead of like believing the meaning, believing the certainty, we have to see it as a construction, that it isn't what it appears to be. And then we realize the mind that's not dependent on meaning. We become free from the known, free from meaning. We don't realize what a weight it is to have to have meaning. Like, to have to have an idea of who I am is a real burden. Or, let alone, all the ideas I have to have about who you are and about what's right and what's wrong, about how life should be lived. All of these ideas and any certainty about these ideas is really hellish. And if we look at certainty, if we look at beliefs, we start to realize a kind of freedom. Another of these places for practice is any sense of good or bad. And I mentioned this earlier tonight, like you might be left with the feeling that this treat was really good. And I'm not saying it wasn't really good. But if we idealize the retreat and kind of make it good, then we've made something bad, like not retreat. And then like maybe our regular life becomes bad and retreat becomes good. And so we should look at anything that has a strong sense. It's just related to having a belief, but specifically a belief about something being good or something being bad. And really be interested in that as it begins to manifest. Maybe you think you're a bad meditator. And then you should be suspicious. Oh, this is interesting. I seem pretty certain about being bad. Or pretty certain about being, that was a good set. Or something like that. And just, again, anytime anything seems real in a solid sense, in a permanent sense, it comes at a real cost. Because if we're Because when something seems real, it allows the sense of self to get reinforced. And we're just setting ourselves up for a fall because there can never be ground for a permanent, solid self. Life is fluid. It it always has been, always will be. And so when we 
through the process of thinking, create something that seems real and solid and permanent, we either create suffering or we use it as a doorway. And the last we talked about already, but just I'll mention again, is just the sense of separation. Any feeling of alienation or loneliness or being different than or being apart from, then we want to really look at that. Instead of reflexively believing it as true, I really do feel alone. And don't argue with yourself and say, no, I don't, I shouldn't feel alone, or I shouldn't feel apart, because that's not what the Buddha teaches. So it's not about having an argument with any of these four doorways. It's about getting interested in, in seeing that if the heart can move close, if the heart can be willing to be intimate, something will happen. If the heart opens to what it doesn't want to open to, something will happen. The heart that can open to that will have to be revealed. And that's a liberated heart. And that's how, remember, liberation or freedom or release has to be a natural event. It doesn't happen because somebody wants it to happen. It happens because the causes and conditions are there for it to happen. What are the causes and conditions? For release, it's when the heart moves towards something that it doesn't think it can open to, doesn't want to see, doesn't want to be close to, it reveals the heart that can open to it, can see it, can be relaxed with it. And that's the freedom. It's opening to things we don't want to open to, seeing things we don't want to see. Here's how Ajahn Chah describes it. We can leave it here with this short quote. I've mentioned to a few people already this book um, that takes its title from this passage, this short teaching by Ajahn Chah. The book is Still Forest Pool. And the quote, Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So you can just take a few moments and let go of the words. Listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.